Welcome to the Perennials Podcast Book Club. I'm Victoria Russell, and you're listening to Chapter 37 of Anne of Green Gables by L. M. Montgomery. Chapter 37 The Reaper Whose Name is Death. Matthew, Matthew, what is the matter? Matthew, are you sick? It was Marilla who spoke, alarm in every jerky word. Anne came through the hall, her hands full of white narcissus. It was long before Anne could love the sight or odor of white narcissus again. In time to hear her, and to see Matthew standing in the porch doorway, a folded paper in his hand, and his face strangely drawn and gray. Anne dropped her flowers and sprang across the kitchen to him at the same moment as Marilla. They were both too late. Before they could reach him, Matthew had fallen across the threshold. "'He's fainted,' gasped Marilla. "'Anne, run for Martin. Quick, quick! He's at the barn!' Martin, the hired man, who had just driven home from the post office, started at once for the doctor, calling at Orchard Slope on his way to send Mr. and Mrs. Barry over. Mrs. Lynde, who was there on an errand, came too. They found Anne and Marilla distractedly trying to restore Matthew to consciousness. Mrs. Lynde pushed them gently aside, tried his pulse, and then laid her ear over his heart. She looked at their anxious faces sorrowfully, and the tears came into her eyes. "'Oh, Marilla,' she said gravely, I don't think we can do anything for him. Mrs. Lynde, you don't think, you can't think Matthew is, is... Anne could not say the dreadful word. She turned sick and pallid. Child, yes, I'm afraid of it. Look at his face. When you've seen that look as often as I have, you'll know what it means. Anne looked at the still face, and there beheld the seal of the great presence. When the doctor came, he said that death had been instantaneous and probably painless, caused in all likelihood by some sudden shock. The secret of the shock was discovered to be in the paper Matthew had held, and which Martin had brought from the office that morning. It contained an account of the failure of the Abbey Bank. The news spread quickly through Avonlea, and all day friends and neighbors thronged Green Gables and came and went on errands of kindness for the dead and living. For the first time, shy, quiet Matthew Cuthbert was a person of central importance. The white majesty of death had fallen on him and set him apart as one crowned. When the calm night came softly down over Green Gables, the old house was hushed and tranquil. In the parlor lay Matthew Cuthbert in his coffin, his long gray hair framing his pallid face on which there was a little kindly smile, as if he but slept, dreaming pleasant dreams. There were flowers about him, sweet old-fashioned flowers which his mother had planted in the homestead garden in her bridal days, and for which Matthew had always had a secret, wordless love. Anne had gathered them and brought them to him, her anguished, tearless eyes burning in her white face. It was the last thing she could do for him. The Berries and Mrs. Lynde stayed with them that night. Diana, going to the east gable where Anne was standing at her window, said gently, "'Anne, dear, would you like to have me sleep with you tonight?' Thank you, Diana. Anne looked earnestly into her friend's face. I think you won't misunderstand me when I say that I want to be alone. I'm not afraid. I haven't been alone one minute since it happened, and I want to be. I want to be quite silent and quiet and try to realize it. I can't realize it. Half the time it seems to me that Matthew can't be dead, and the other half it seems as if he must have been dead for a long time and I've had this horrible dull ache ever since. Diana did not quite understand. Marilla's impassioned grief, breaking all the bounds of natural reserve and lifelong habit in its stormy rush, she could comprehend better than Anne's tearless agony. But she went away kindly, leaving Anne alone to keep her first vigil with sorrow. 
Anne hoped that tears would come in solitude. It seemed to her a terrible thing that she could not shed a tear for Matthew, whom she had loved so much, and who had been so kind to her, Matthew, who had walked with her last evening at sunset, and was now lying in the dim room below with that awful peace on his brow. But no tears came at first, even when she knelt by her window in the darkness and prayed, looking up to the stars beyond the hills. No tears, only the same horrible, dull ache of misery that kept on aching until she fell asleep, worn out with the day's pain and excitement. In the night she awakened, with the stillness and the darkness about her, and the recollection of the day came over her like a wave of sorrow. She could see Matthew's face smiling at her as he had smiled when they parted at the gate that last evening. She could hear his voice saying, "'My girl, my girl that I'm proud of.' Then the tears came, and Anne wept her heart out. Marilla heard her and crept in to comfort her. "'There, there. Don't cry so, dearie. It can't bring him back. It—it it isn't right to cry so. I knew that today, but I couldn't help it then. He'd always been such a good, kind brother to me. But God knows best.' "'Oh, just let me cry, Marilla.' sobbed Anne. The tears don't hurt me like that ache did. Stay here for a little while with me and keep your arm round me, so. I couldn't have Diana stay. She's good and kind and sweet, but it's not her sorrow. She's outside of it, and she couldn't come close enough to my heart to help me. It's our sorrow, yours and mine. Oh, Marilla, what will we do without him? We've got each other, Anne. I don't know what I'd do if you weren't here, if you'd never come. Oh, Anne, I know I've been kind of strict and harsh with you, maybe, but you mustn't think I didn't love you as well as Matthew did for all that. I want to tell you now when I can. It's never been easy for me to say things out of my heart, but at times like this it's easier. I love you as dear as if you were my own flesh and blood, and you've been my joy and comfort ever since you came to Green Gables. Two days afterwards, they carried Matthew Cuthbert over his homestead threshold and away from the fields he had tilled and the orchards he had loved and the trees he had planted. And then Avonlea settled back to its usual placidity, and even at Green Gables affairs slipped into their old groove and work was done and duties fulfilled with regularity as before, although always with the aching sense of loss and all familiar things. Anne, new to grief, thought it almost sad that it could be so that they could go on in the old way without Matthew. She felt something like shame and remorse when she discovered that the sunrises behind the firs and the pale pink buds opening in the garden gave her the old inrush of gladness when she saw them, that Diana's visits were pleasant to her, and that Diana's merry words and ways moved her to laughter and smiles, that, in brief, the beautiful world of blossom and love and friendship had lost none of its power to please her fancy and thrill her heart, that life still called to her with many insistent voices. It seems like disloyalty to Matthew somehow to find pleasure in these things now that he's gone, she said wistfully to Mrs. Allen one evening when they were together in the manse garden. I miss him so much, all the time, and yet, Mrs. Allen, the world and life seem very beautiful and interesting to me for all. Today Diana said something funny, and I found myself laughing. I thought when it happened I could never laugh again, and it somehow seems as if I oughtn't to. When Matthew was here, he liked to hear you laugh, and he liked to know that you found pleasure in the pleasant things around you, said Mrs. Allen gently. He is just away now, and he likes to know it just the same. I am sure we should not shut our hearts against the healing influences that nature offers us, but I understand your feeling, 
I think we all experience the same thing. We resent the thought that anything can please us when someone we love is no longer here to share the pleasure with us, and we almost feel as if we were unfaithful to our sorrow when we find our interest in life returning to us. I was down to the graveyard to plant a rosebush on Matthew's grave this afternoon, said Anne dreamily. I took a slip of the little white scotch rosebush his mother brought out from Scotland long ago. Matthew always liked those roses the best. They were so small and sweet on their thorny stems. It made me feel glad that I could plant it by his grave, as if I were doing something that must please him in taking it there to be near him. I hope he has roses like them in heaven. Perhaps the souls of all those little white roses that he has loved so many summers were all there to meet him. I must go home now. Marilla is all alone and she gets lonely at twilight. She will be lonelier still, I fear, when you go away to college, said Mrs. Allen. Anne did not reply. She said good night and went slowly back to Green Gables. Marilla was sitting on the front door steps and Anne sat down beside her. The door was open behind them, held back by a big pink conch shell with hints of sea sunsets in its smooth inner convolutions. Anne gathered some sprays of pale yellow honeysuckle and put them in her hair. She liked the delicious hint of fragrance, as of some aerial benediction, above her every time she moved. "'Dr. Spencer was here while you were away,' Marilla said. "'He says that the specialist will be in town tomorrow, and he insists that I must go in and have my eyes examined. I suppose I'd better go and have it over. I'll be more than thankful if the man can give me the right kind of glasses to suit my eyes. You won't mind staying here alone while I'm away, will you? Martin will have to drive me in, and there's ironing and baking to do.' I shall be all right. Diana will come over for company for me. I shall attend to the ironing and baking beautifully. You needn't fear that I'll starch the handkerchiefs or flavor the cake with liniment. Marilla laughed. What a girl you were for making mistakes in them days, Anne. You were always getting into scrapes. I did used to think you were possessed. Do you mind the time you dyed your hair? Yes, indeed, I shall never forget it, smiled Anne, touching the heavy braid of hair that was wound about her shapely head. I laugh a little now sometimes when I think what a worry my hair used to be to me, but I don't laugh much, because it was a very real trouble then. I did suffer terribly over my hair and my freckles. My freckles are really gone, and people are nice enough to tell me my hair is auburn now, all but Josie Pye. She informed me yesterday that she really thought it was redder than ever, or at least my black dress made it look redder, and she asked me if people who had red hair ever got used to having it. Marilla, I've almost decided to give up trying to like Josie Pye. I've made what I would once have called a heroic effort to like her, but Josie Pye won't be liked. Josie is a pie, said Marilla sharply, so she can't help being disagreeable. I suppose people of that kind serve some useful purpose in society, but I must say I don't know what it is any more than I know the use of thistles. Is Josie going to teach? No, she's going back to Queen's next year. So are Moody Spurgeon and Charlie Sloan. Jane and Ruby are going to teach, and they have both got schools. Jane at Newbridge and Ruby at some place up west. Gilbert Blythe is going to teach, too, isn't he? Yes. Briefly. What a nice-looking young fellow he is, Marilla said absently. I saw him in church last Sunday, and he seemed so tall and manly. He looks a lot like his father did at the same age. John Blythe was a nice boy. We used to be real good friends, he and I. People called him my beau. Anne looked up with swift interest. Oh, Marilla, and what happened? Why didn't you? We had a quarrel. I wouldn't forgive him when he asked me to. I meant to after a while, but I was sulky and angry and I wanted to punish him first. He never came back. The Blythes were all mighty independent. But I always felt rather sorry. 
I've always kind of wished I'd forgiven him when I had the chance. So you've had a bit of romance in your life, too, said Anne softly. Yes, I suppose you might call it that. You wouldn't think so to look at me, would you? But you never can tell about people from their outsides. Everybody has forgot about me and John. I'd forgotten myself. But it all came back to me when I saw Gilbert last Sunday. The first thing that really strikes me in this chapter is the detail of how Anne is carrying these white Narcissus flowers when she comes in and sees Matthew stricken. And it's noted that it would be a long time before she could love the sight or the smell of these flowers again. And I think that's something that everyone at some point has a really vivid sensory memory, I think particularly with smell, that might get attached to a very painful or even traumatic moment. And when you see or smell that thing again, it sends your body like right back into that moment, at least for some time. I remember after my grandmother died, the smell of fresh flowers in church always reminded me of her funeral. So that really stuck with me. And then I was just so struck by the response of the community and the, the the involvement of the community in this moment. So from the moment that Matthew collapses, you know, Martin goes to get the berries and Mrs. Lind is there. They come over and Mrs. Lind makes this remark about when you've seen that look as often as I have, you know what it means. It makes me think of Mrs. Lind in a, in a different way, in a makes her a more complex character to me because, you know, we see her as a gossipy busybody. But the fact that she's been present for a lot of death, I don't know, it gives her character more weight and a different level of seriousness. But also, I feel even more appreciation for Mrs. Lind because if she goes to her neighbors who are sick or dying, you know, if she shows up for them, um, it just gives me more appreciation and and respect for her in a way. And then the whole community, all of the neighbors really show up right away and the berries are there. And it makes me think about how this, this community, this small town community, they're kind of isolated. It's, you know, this was published in the, in the very early 20th century. I wonder if their experience of things like birth and illness and death felt very, close. Like it wasn't happening in a hospital far away. These things were frequently happening in their homes and they were showing up for their neighbors and helping to carry each other through these things. And it's always interesting when characters behave in a way that seems uncharacteristic. So Marilla is being very vocal and expressive about her grief and Anne doesn't cry and almost can't process what's happened. It seems uncharacteristic, but at the same time, I think it actually makes a lot of sense. I think that Marilla has been so anxious. Like we've seen that she's always waiting for the other shoe to drop. She's always foreseeing catastrophe. She's kind of, but she holds things in. Like she doesn't, she doesn't express a lot of her emotions. She tries to kind of soldier through and tough it out. But under the surface, there's anxiety, fear, worry, repression. And so I think it makes sense that when the catastrophe does actually happen, it just is like, a you know, it rushes through like the dam breaks and it just rushes through her because it's like 
she's been holding this tenuous, this tenuous grip on her internal experience. And then with Anne, Anne has been so expressive and she's been so close with Matthew, like the detail of her bringing his his favorite flowers that his mother planted. Like she knows Matthew. Does Marilla even know that those are his favorite flowers? I don't know. But they had this closeness and this intimacy and she's been expressing her feelings and it's such a personal thing to happen, but she's been surrounded by all of this hullabaloo, like all of these people and all of this commotion. And we know that she really she really needs to be like in nature or in solitude um, to really connect with herself and her spirit. And I think it makes a lot of sense that it's in the middle of the night, um, that time when, you know, even when nothing's wrong, I think everyone's had the experience of sometimes waking up in the middle of the night with a sense of doom or terror or fear. It's like that that really liminal time where you're in dream world. It's this very different space that we're in. It makes sense to me that that's really when it finally hits her when she's alone and she's in that sort of space. And of course, then the interaction between her and Marilla of Marilla rushing in and and Marilla's like, I know I expressed my grief. I shouldn't have done that. Don't cry. You know, she's back to let's repress. Let's, it's all good. You know, this is God's plan, that type of response. And I love that Anne is just like, let me cry. It was worse when I wasn't crying. Um, This is better. Anne is so wise about that. And then to hear Marilla really express to Anne her love for Anne you know, almost kind of saying to Anne, like, don't fear that the only person who really loved you is gone because I'm here and I love you just as much as Matthew did. And it's just this instance of grief and tragedy having that effect of making someone look at their life, their priorities, and and like, what are they, how are they relating to the people they love and cherish the most? Are they, are they showing how much they love them and cherish them? Are they telling them expressing it to them. I think that grief can just crack people open and their whole world has been so unsettled by this and things are going to be so different. It makes sense that they would react differently than than maybe they have to other things. I think the most beautiful part of the chapter, the part that just shows Montgomery's real grasp on the human experience is when Anne starts to enjoy life again and she finds herself laughing and delighting in nature and the beauty of the world and she tells Mrs. Allen that she feels some shame about this like she shouldn't she shouldn't be able to enjoy the world now that Matthew can't and I'm so happy that she has Mrs. Allen there with her to say that's so human and I remember very vividly when my nanny died my grandmother, that I was like, I don't want to stop actively grieving because that would be like saying I consented to what had happened. If I accept it, it's like I would almost feel complicit in it. Like I was saying to God, I remember having this thought, like I was saying to God, it's okay that you did that. I accept it. And if I said that, it would be like saying, and you can do it again because I accept this, I accept that it's okay. I'm not saying this was rational logic, 
but in my 14-year-old grieving body and heart and sensitive soul, I just was like, no, this loss is not okay. Like, I, I, I am not okay with this. It was not okay for my grandmother to get so sick and, and die pretty young. She was only 69. She had a terrible illness. And, um, and I remember just thinking like, well, if I keep grieving, um, that's like my protest almost like that's my message to the universe or to God. That's not okay. And, and so this part of the chapter is just particularly close to my heart because I really understand what Anne is saying. And I think it's so human. And I'm so glad that Mrs. Allen is there to to help guide her through it as best she can. And I, and I love that Montgomery is showing that there is still so much life and so much beauty, um, even amidst the grief. I feel like this chapter is just as much about living as it is about death. We, like It's about Marilla living by expressing her grief and her love and it's about Anne living by continuing to enjoy and appreciate the world, even after this loss. And I really love that at the end of the chapter, Marilla tells Anne about her previous relationship with Gilbert Blythe's father and how she always regretted not forgiving him. And I love this because it's a moment where Marilla is able to pass on some wisdom and some guidance to Anne that isn't just about, here's how to bake a cake, here's how to iron the laundry, here's how to behave properly in public. You know, those are some things that she's taught her that that are, you know, that are good for her to know, good skills. You know, she's helped her get herself together. But this is like a deeper, a deeper type of parenting and guiding that she's doing, which is to help her think about how she wants to relate to people in the world. And and Marilla is sharing something in a way that's a little bit vulnerable for her. Like she is admitting, she's admitting that her stubbornness got in the way of connection. And what I think is really interesting about it too is that it also shows how Marilla and Anne are similar too. That you know, Marilla also has that anger, you know, she wants to punish, she wants to punish him. Um, she has that stubbornness and Anne does too, but she's able to show Anne how to maybe balance it a little bit so that Anne doesn't have that same type of regret. So just what a beautiful penultimate chapter of this book. It was so hard to read without crying I had to re-record some parts. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me next time for the final chapter of the book. Take care. Bye.